Welcome, Jen, to the podcast, You Don't Know What You Don't Know Until You Know. Um, so we've got some big questions, but before I, uh, we say, get you to talk and say hello, I was just going to introduce you and go through the list of things that you've done in your life. Actually, when I was reading through your website and your bio, it sounded like um, it was Kate Winslet on Titanic. You know, at the end, they should do the flashback of how she lived a life. There's not one thing you haven't done. So um, reflexology, reflexology, this is things that you've studied, Chinese massage, Reiki, human behaviour, coaching, mindfulness, leadership, culture. And then as far as your experience, it's so diverse, your, your work and life experience, by a dancer, I'm going to come back to that. Uh, tattooist, cable guy, motorcycle. Um, what is here? Actually, I can't even read my own writing. Kindergarten teacher. This like it just keeps going. What what haven't you done actually that you'd love to do? Oh, there's certainly things that I haven't done that I'd love to do. And um, and by the way, hi and thanks for having <laughs> me on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, oh, look, there's some places that I have, you know, been longing to get to that haven't, I haven't been to the South American continent and I haven't been to Africa. Um, and so they're high on my to-do list when we, can, when we can travel again one day, perhaps. Um, yeah, oh, look, there is, there's a lot of stuff I haven't done, but yes, there is a lot of stuff that I have done. I, I, I have packed a lot into one life and, um, you know, when I'm asked to kind of list the different ways that I've earned money and the different experiences that I've had. Um, I, you know, I, I could almost freak myself out a little bit too sometimes going, wow, that, how, how did I fit all of that into my less than 50 years? Oh, so. so, and you start off as like, you must've started with a explorer mindset that you wanted to try different things. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I used to refer to myself when I was younger as an experienced junkie. So I just had this insatiable um, thirst that I could never quench to experience new things. Um, and that led me into all sorts of um, fun times and slightly dangerous situations. And um, it, yeah, it led me to do things that I, I never would have done if I wasn't just trying to experience something new, you know. So um, that, that looks like it comes up a lot in the work that you do now and we'll definitely, you know, touch a lot in that because I know you um, do a lot of speaking around innovation. So that kind of mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. How do you, a lot of people in their life actually get to the stage where I haven't experienced or explored and you had that and then you had, you worked in corporate and then you've kind of gone back into doing your own thing and back into this exploring, correct me if I'm wrong, but exploring part of your life again. Is mm. that, um, you mentioned something yeah, in your yeah. bio about a, a, having a midlife crisis. Yeah, look, I, I ended up working, um, I've always been very alternative. I've never been, um, you know, I, I was never a nine to five, do as we're told follow the follow the well-worn path kind of person um, but then when I became a dad so when when um, we had our first child um, and I was in my early 30s and I hadn't really stuck at anything for very long so one of the one of the ways I've packed so much into my life is that I never did anything for more than six months or a year and then I get bored and I'd go and do something else or go and live somewhere else but when we had kids, um, then I kicked into, you know, provider and, and I was like, wow, I've got to provide for these kids and there's a certain lifestyle that I want my children to have. And so to do that, I'm going to have to find a pretty reliable way to earn money. Um, I'd been traveling all through my 20s and didn't really know what to do, didn't have any qualifications um, on none really that I was interested in following. And so I got a job in travel. So I went and worked with Flight Centre. And I thought if I stick at one thing for long enough, um, I'll probably get moderately successful at it. Um, and that was true. I spent eight years with Flight Centre and worked my way up through various leadership roles. Um, and the last few years of that were, were in a senior leadership role um, with anywhere from 100 to 150 staff and 15 different shops over five different brands and lots of zeros on the spreadsheets, lots of pressure to keep driving 
net profit growth, uh, but also lots of learning in, um, you know, Flight Centre. I haven't been with them. I think I finished up with them about seven years ago now. Feels like many lifetimes ago. But one of the things that Flight Centre were really good at internally was their people development. So there was lots of money invested in leadership development, coaching development, um, all that sort of stuff. And that's the stuff I really loved. So um, there was a, towards the last, in the last couple of years there, we outsourced and got a coach to come in and run a few days training for our senior leadership group. And I was blown away. He was awesome. Um, his name's Joe Parne. Hi, Joe, I'm giving you a plug. Oh, He's um, nice. one of my favorite people and he became a mentor and then a friend. And when I met him and he was teaching us, you know, human behavioral profiling and coaching and NLP, I was blown away. I just loved it. Really, really loved it. And it resonated for me. And that's when I decided that's what I wanted to do after working at Flight Center. So then when I left Flight Center, I studied coaching and started my own coaching practice. And that led to where I am now. Wow. What do you remember what you learned about yourself when you first experienced coaching with Joe? Um, I learned that one of the things that um, really excited me was that there's certain human behavioral patterns that are what I call macro behavioral patterns, which means they apply to all humans. And that when we start to understand these macro behavioral patterns, which are the things that we have that as a species we, we share, um, that there's like a code, there's a, there's a matrix to understanding human behavior. And the more you understand about the matrix, the more you understand about the code, um, the better you understand yourself, the better you can understand others, which then means that you, your relationship with self gets better and your relationship with others gets better, um, so, which is your relationship to life. So um, for me, it was a, it, I was just curious because you could learn to speak this other language, which, which is the language of human behavior. Um, but also, you know, there's so much else, you know, there's some of the, some of the kind of vulnerabilities that I'd experienced as an individual. Then I realized, wow, a lot of people experience these same vulnerabilities, you know, like the racket of I'm not good enough. You know, what if I'm not enough? What mm -hmm. if I'm not smart enough? What if I'm not clever enough? What if I'm not good looking enough? What if I'm not fast enough or fit enough or, you know, insert here, whatever it is, but this fear of what if I'm not enough, which for me, um, prior to my midlife awakening, I call it midlife. Oh, crisis, good, better word. Yeah, yeah, I call better. it midlife awakening. Yeah. In my early forties, Prior to that, um, I had subconsciously um, created a belief that I'm not good enough. Uh, and that was showing up in all sorts of, you know, not so nice ways in my life. But I felt very alone in that. I thought that was some kind of personal neurosis. And, um, and so didn't really speak about it with people because I thought it was just me. And then you start to learn about human, human behavior and, you realize that there's so many of us that as little people, when we were kids had the fear of what if I'm not enough for my mum and dad. And then for a lot of us, that fear becomes a belief. I'm not enough. And then when we have a belief around something, we tend to distort the information from our environment and make it mean our belief is true. So there'll be something that happens in the big wide world or, or to us and we'll make it mean that we're not good enough, which then, um, strengthens the belief and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so your outside experience starts to resemble your internal belief set around yourself and the way life is. Anyway, so when I, when I found out that it wasn't just me um, and that uh, thanks to neuroplasticity and the ability for our minds, our brains, the wiring to change and to change it more consciously, um, I went to work on myself and, um, scratched up that old belief and replaced it with the belief that I am enough uh, and, and life started to change. When do you realise that, I mean, even using the words, I'm not good enough, that you start to have that awareness, that you have that belief? Because it, even to get to that stage, maybe there's patterns and things going on in your life and then to get to that stage, then actually put language around it. Massive steps. Like, yeah. 
yeah, how it would for me in a cathartic experience. So for people to um, to create real change, massive change, um, it, it's usually either some full-on life experience, um, like the death of a loved one, um, or the loss of something really, really massive, um, or it doesn't have to be through through painful catharsis. It can be through um, through other ways, like I guess. But for me, it was um, a few things kind of happened in a row. My dad, first my dad died. Then a few months later, my little brother died on his motorbike. That was very sudden and very traumatic. And then um, I was in a, a sweat lodge. I don't know if your listeners know what a sweat lodge is. Some of them probably do. A sweat lodge is a traditional Native American Indian practice where um, either, either men do it together or women do it together or, they, or it's mixed. Um, but this one that I was in was just men and it's a little kind of like a shaped like an igloo, but not in the snow, just in the bush. And they get really, really hot stones from a fire and you go inside and it's pitch black, quite small. Um, and the stones are in the middle in a, in a little pit in the middle and it gets really, really hot. It's like a sauna. Um, but there's the people who are guiding it, um, or the, at least the one that I was in use native american indian um chanting and sharing and speaking and conversations that go around in the circle anyway i got so delirious and so heated up in there that i had an out-of-body experience and um went back to being it felt like i was the five-year-old version of me um which was before an experience in my life when i was six where i first started to where i i've kind of worked this all out you know with the benefit of hindsight and something happened when I was six where I think that's where I started to believe that I wasn't good enough. Anyway, so I went back to being five again and five-year-old me was, yeah, of course I'm enough. Like I'm just a five-year-old kid. Life's exciting and curious. And so I had this amazing kind of out-of-body experience. Came out of that and, and just was elated. Like I, it was like elation and I was piecing it all together. I went home. Um, my mum had been over looking after my boys, my kids, while I was out doing this work. Um, and then went to bed and then that night had this most prophetic dream with a serpent and blah, blah, blah. I won't go into too much detail, but it was amazing. And I came out of this dream in the morning. What, like a message or guidance in What's the dream? Sorry? Did you receive message or a guidance in the dream? I, I just, in the dream, I had this serpent that was living inside me down my core and I had to get the serpent out. That's all I knew how to, that I needed to do. And I kept trying to pull this big serpent out. But every time I'd put it down on the ground, it would quickly wriggle back down inside me again, right? So then I realized that I needed help. So in the dream, then I had male companions around me helping me get this serpent out. And then in the end, I found a way to get it out and close it up in this jar with a big lid so it couldn't come back inside me again. That's all the dream was about. But when I woke up in the morning, as soon as I woke up, I knew that that serpent was the belief that I'm not good enough, mm. that had been living deep in my core and I had to get it out. Now, this just came to me. I hadn't read a book about this yet. I hadn't studied any of the, the behavioural stuff that I was going to study. I didn't know anything about it. I just went, oh, my God, that serpent was this belief that I'm not good enough. And then I went and started looking for books and um, you know, I read some some awesome books around changing the brain and changing the wiring. Um, and then very quickly, one thing led to another and um, my life completely turned around. I, I didn't have the, the job that I had anymore. Um, I moved my way out of my marriage because my marriage was um, not working and I needed to free us both from that. And yeah, so that was all happening at the same time. This is the midlife awakening thing. How does your view on life change when you go through or having the realisation that you are enough? Completely. Completely changes. Because when, when you think about it, your ability to, um, your relationship with life, your relationship with others, your relationship with everything external is completely linked. It's completely a part of the same story that is your relationship with yourself. Because you're, you're only, the only way you can experience life, mm. others, 
you know, the world around you, whatever. The only way you can experience it is through your mind. Yeah, because we get all these bits of information from the outside world that come. We receive these bits of information through our senses. We see things, hear things, smell, taste, touch. And this, these bits of information come through our filtering system, which is our set of beliefs, and we represent them inside our mind. So your flavor, your version of life is very, very personal to you. Mm. You know, if you meet someone who has a belief that life is tough, life is tough for them. That's how they experience it. So your beliefs are, are very much shaping the, 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 the flavor of your mind is very much shaping the flavor of your experience of life. Yeah. Now a big part of mind is our, our sense of identity, our ego, our relationship to self, that I am this uh, subject that I am, um, that I'm looking out at the world and I'm at the center of, of my universe and who am I and how do I identify that relationship with self you, you cannot not have that flavor your relationship with the big wide world, right? It's all the same thing. So when your relationship to self is not as healthy as it could be, i.e. I'm not enough or the negative self-talk or, you know, when you look in the mirror and talk badly to yourself and, you know, when you start to inspect the way we talk to ourselves, we're horrible to ourselves. Mm. We would never talk to anybody the way we talk to ourselves. Mm. You know, like you do something wrong and we just self-abuse inside your head. The voice in your head is just relentless and unfiltered and horrible, you know. I'm thinking, wow, if I'm treating myself like that, how can that not be affecting my relationship to life? Mm. So, then, so then we go on this journey of I'm going to teach myself how to really, really ease up on myself, forgive myself, accept myself and love myself and it's a practice right it's like yoga or pilates you don't get good at it and tick the box and not do it anymore it's a continual practice of self-love um, mm. but yeah it, my relationship with life is vastly different to what it was before well, how do you approach the the topic of self-love with someone that is so new to the concept it depends on who it is yeah, if I'm chatting with, um, if I'm chatting with a bloke at the pub who's from a bikey gang, and you know, and he's culturally, um, he's the product of an environment where you know to use those words would just be laughable. Then I wouldn't use those words. Um, but if I was talking with someone, um, you know, who had a spiritual practice, then you know, so it depends on who you're talking to. What percentage of people do you think think they're not good enough? Hmm. Oh, look, what percentage? Certainly a majority. Certainly a majority. And I think culturally it would be, um, you know, different. There are certain cultures where, you know, from in America and in Australia, it's um, self-love is a thing that's, you know, I've got to look after myself and I should follow my heart and I should be doing what I love doing. That's very cultural. You know, there are some cultures like places in China and, um, you know, India, uh, you know, there's other places where they don't think about what I, I should be doing, what's best for me. They think I should be doing what's best for my village. Mm. So it, it culturally, it, it depends. But look, let's say here in Australia, um, certainly a majority, I don't know if it's 70 or 80% of people. Mm. It's the imposter syndrome, you know. You hear famous people talk about it. Famous people have this fear that someone's going to come and knock on their door and say, you don't deserve to be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire film star. You're no better than anybody else. They feel like the rug's going to be pulled out from underneath them. That's the same thing. What if I'm not enough? And then that just spirals, spirals into the next thing about attachment and non-attachment. Yeah. Which go hand in hand, yep. really. Yeah. One leads completely. into the other. You, um, I read somewhere, I don't know if I wrote it myself when you were doing speed coaching, conscious leadership. Like I hadn't heard anyone use that term. Maybe I haven't read enough things, but conscious leadership, I thought, oh, that's so, it's, it's so interesting. But what is it? 
Like we get, you know, some of us get leadership. I think leadership is quite ambiguous as well when you move into leadership, but consciously leadership is, yeah, is interesting. Conscious, the word conscious for me just means aware. So if you're conscious, you're aware. And there are moments where we're conscious and there's moments where we're unconscious. And for a lot of us, we spend most of our lives unconscious. Mm-hmm. We're walking around. It's like we're walking around asleep or in a dream. There's so much that we're not conscious of. Um, and so consciousness, self-conscious or, or self-awareness is just this, a practice of um, exploration into um, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Um, am I, am I the driver of my bus? Sorry, I don't know if you can hear the motorbike. Yeah, that's all right. (laughs) Um, am I the, am I the driver of my own bus or am I a passenger on my own bus? And to, to be a driver of your bus. And what I mean by that is that, you know, do I have some influence over my physiology, over my mental, emotional, physical state? And yeah, we can have, we, we can have a lot more influence over our state than we think we can. Or am I a victim to it? You know, does, do things happen to me? So does someone do something to me and then I'm an emotional wreck and I'm miserable for three days because of something that was done to me? Or do things happen around me um, and I react and then have the ability to pause, go into awareness, become conscious of, of what's going on and choose whether or not to feed into that or whether to step outside of it or not. So conscious leadership, most of my clients are leaders. I coach leaders. Conscious leadership is um, the practice of understanding your own ego, your own identity, your own agenda, and, and being able to not be governed by that, not be reactionary, but in situations in leadership to be able to pause and respond. So improving your response ability, very literally, your mm. ability to respond and to innovate and create. But the ability to step outside of your ego, which is, like I said, your sense of identity and serve the greater good, essentially. What themes or, uh, do you see coming up that's consistent with your, the leaders that you work with? Maybe before they come to you, like just... Do you see a consistent theme? Yeah, look, a large part of leadership and especially senior leadership, a large part of it is, um, is, is people, you know. In fact, most of my clients, they know their business. They, they know how to run the business. They know strategy. They know macro thinking. They know long-term, medium, short-term planning. They know how to get results the stuff they all struggle with is the people because people are crazy. We're we're all neurotic. We are super, super complex organisms and we're not easy to work out. So um, a lot of the, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the help that I can provide is helping leaders understand their people better and communicate with them more effectively. What's your thoughts on, I don't know what the right terminology is, but soft versus hard in leadership. You know, because the old school thinking, and, and it's definitely still around, is to, you know, be a tough leader and then you get respect and then people, you know, will do their work and, and creating that bit of fear. Yeah, look, I think that's... To get the best out of people. Yeah, that's just becoming less effective. You know, that's, that's coming from post-industrial revolution where we needed people to um, make as many widgets on their part of the production line as possible in, in a shorter period of time as possible. It was people in factories being a number, um, don't bring your emotions, don't bring your personal things, just turn up and do as many widgets as possible in one hour. Um, and the way we would motivate behaviour back then, which is old, and, and doesn't work anymore, um, was extrinsic motivation. So carrot and stick. I'll pay you more if you make more. I'll punish you if you don't. Mm. There's a great book by Daniel Pink called Drive, The Surprising Truth About Motivation. So I recommend that as a read. Um, and he explains in there how um, 
how ineffective that old school intrinsic motivation is. And in today's climate where we need our people to be creative, we need them to be empowered. We need them to be um, emotionally intelligent. We need them to be awesome communicators. We need them to create and innovate. Um, so the, the motivation that gets the best results is intrinsic motivation. That means it matters to them. They actually care about what they're doing. They're, they're motivated to go the extra yard because there's meaning in it for them. Um, so the old style of leadership of tough boss and, you know, kind of fear-based leadership where people are a bit scared of you, it's just not appropriate anymore. Mm. How many people or just do you have the come across the experience of working with a leader and then they realise that the intrinsic motivation isn't there? Why am I doing this, actually? Yeah, completely. Look at that. That happens. Because once the ego strips away, these other things come. You know, you let go and does it really matter as much as I thought it did? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That that certainly happens. People, um, if people don't have, if people are not intrinsically motivated in their workplace, I pretty much guarantee there's no solid engaged culture. So culture being a, a collective purpose that we all agree this is why we're here, the bigger purpose, um, some sense of vision, what are we creating, where are we going, and some, some, um, some set and agreed and, and engaged values. How do we all agree to, to behave when we're here together? Um, and if those things are not in place, it's, you know, it, it'd be a fluke if someone was intrinsically motivated at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and in leadership as well. And look, just back to you, the thing you were mentioning a sec ago about stripping away the ego. I, I'm not a fan of, of stripping away the ego um, or removing the ego or smashing the ego. Um, I, I don't think that works for a start. Um, we've got an ego, so we should have an ego because we've got one, right? Like anything that is should be because it is. And that's not saying that we can't improve it moving forwards, but in any given moment, anything that is should be because it is, right? So we should have an ego because we've got one. I just think that it's a functional um, personal development practice to understand your ego more and more and to be able to step outside of your ego per se into that kind of conscious awareness space so that it's not... um, you know, driving the bus so that it's not dictating everything that you do because that's very limiting. So we should have an ego and we can also create a healthier sense of identity. You know, we can always be improving and updating our sense of identity. So it's a good thing to have an ego. It's just good to be aware that you've got one and, and, and create some choice around your responses. I don't even know the answer or how you would answer this, but do you see the ego as something separate to yourself? Or a part of you. Oh, I love these questions. I love thinking about this. Stuff. Don't even don't even ask me how that came into my head. But yeah, no, this is this is the stuff I find fascinating. Look, I'll start by saying that the people who dedicate all of their professional lives to the study of consciousness still don't know a what consciousness is, and b what purpose does it serve. So they still don't know why consciousness exists. I mean, we could all be very, very um, intelligent zombies walking around without any awareness and function just fine. But we have this awareness. And what is it? I don't know. And, And we can explore it through mindful meditation where you can practice just being aware with that and and you can even notice the thoughts that arise from outside of those thoughts and our ego exists in our thoughts yeah our sense of identity exists in the thoughts that that are you know jumping around in the neurology of the of the brain Uh, so you can step outside of it and you can have this experience that is not my ego but it's still an awareness it's hard to explain if you haven't had it before, but um, for those of you who have had this experience, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you can certainly explore it through um, altered states. You can explore that through psychedelics. You can explore that through mindfulness meditation. 
Um, yeah, and what is it? I don't know. And, you know, like I find this, this leads to other questions, you know, like, so if I'm conscious, at what point in time did I become conscious? So there was a sperm out of trillions that made it into the egg and the sperm and the egg, you know, became conception and then the, the cells start multiplying. At what point in time did the lights switch on? Where do we draw the line? You know, mm. And then other amazing questions like, okay, so I'm conscious, of course, right? I'm a conscious being. What about my dog? Is my dog conscious? Yeah, look, my dog's conscious, you know? Okay, well, what about the cat? What about the mouse? What about the spider? What about the ant? What about the bacteria? What about COVID-19? <laughs> Where do you draw the line for consciousness within living, you breathing I don't think organisms? you do. I think it's everything. Right. There you go. So there are these amazing theories that we can't prove. Yeah, no. And if people have got different theories, but it's certainly fascinating. Like, I, you know, if I'm going to sit down and, and contemplate something, I love contemplating this stuff. Great, because that was going to be my next question. What... what what are you just looking at your like where you've come to and where you are now you you're in search it was in search of something and and now it feels like you're kind of the not good enough in search of the true self or yourself but where are you now going or are you oh now i'm just on a mission to help as many people as possible oh that's great yeah that's beautiful yeah yeah you know the 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 kind of um the clearer you become within yourself and your relationship to life so the less stuff you have the more resolved you are with with you and your relationship to life then the clearer you can see others the more you can be there for others you know if i'm sitting there trying to help someone but i've got a thick layer of my own biases and my own hang-ups and my own unresolved stuff from my past then that person that i'm trying to help what they're con that what they're communicating to me or expressing to me has to make its way through all my gunk right mm. so the more resolved and clear you become with yourself and your relationship with life the clearer you can see others the more present you can be for others and then it's this beautiful um, thing that feeds itself because the more that you're there for others the happier you become yeah in being in service for other people it just creates more joy um which makes your life better and you know your sense of love for yourself and your life better which makes it easier for you to help more people so it's yeah, it's a nice kind of thing that feeds itself what does success mean to you mm. yeah that's a great question what does success mean to me success means to me um, that I can live the lifestyle that I want for me and my kids, um, doing something that I love doing um, that is good for, good for me and good for those around me and good for the greater good. I think that's a version of success. That was a bit not very concise, was it? Um, supporting the lifestyle that I want for me and my kids, doing good work that I love. Because mm. a lot of you know, just in the world that we live in, success can, you know, comes up so much, especially now when people are talking about the economy versus the virus, what's more important mm. uh, and, and, and opening up uh, society again and functioning as we were and, and getting businesses back into, you know, to where they were and this, mm. I don't even know if it's going to get back to where we were, but... Of course it won't. Um, the, can you have mindfulness and money? Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Oh, 100%. Yeah. One of, one of my favourite um, teachers, I'll use the word teacher, um, over the last few years, um, maybe three or four years I've been following him now, is a guy called Sam Harris. Yeah, um, I know yeah. Sam Harris. And his, his podcast is Making Sense and his um, mindfulness meditation app is called Waking Up. And I subscribe to both of them. Um, he's awesome, by the way. If you can't afford to subscribe to either his app or his um, podcast, you just send an email to his support team and say, hey, I really want to follow you, but I can't afford it. And they just give it to you for free. Um, so he doesn't want money to be a thing that prevents anyone from, you know, from his content. 
Um, but anyway, he's, he's awesome. He's a neuroscientist among other things. Now he's a full-time podcast, um, podcaster app maker. Um, but he has spent a total, I think he says if you add up all of his silent retreats, it would add up to two years in silent retreat. Sorry, I'm just grabbing uh, the coffee. <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having a coffee. Right well done. Here you go. It's oh, actually. Thanks. You've got that well sorted. Um, yeah, no, so he spent a lot of time um, curious about mindfulness meditation um, overseas and, you know, at home in America for him. So I, I, follow, I follow him and, look, he, he has a very great mindfulness practice and he's very good at explaining how... Um, the better we get at mindfulness, the better the quality of our lives. And he's not short of a penny. I mean, I, his podcast is one of the most successful podcasts in the world. I reckon he'd be kind of doing pretty well. So yeah. can you have mindfulness and money? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. I think that if you, know, if you have money and mindfulness, less likely to get caught up in the, the traditional trappings of, of having wealth. Mm, yeah. And Jim Carrey says that... Uh, he wishes everyone could be famous so they could actually fam famous and wealthy so they could actually realize it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the practices that you do on a regular basis mm. to, you know, for whatever reason, if it's mindfulness, but practices are quite interesting because like you said, if you're trying to change your brain, then a practice yeah. can help you. So, yeah, I mean, let's just cut to it, right? People, people feel funny about saying that everything we do is because we're trying to experience as much happiness in life as possible, right? People go, oh, you know, the, you know this pursuit of happiness thing is, you know, it's not everything and sadness is just as valid and, you know, all the dark emotions are just as valid as the light emotions. And, yes, they are. Everything is as valid as itself. But let's be honest, everyone's wanting to try and experience as much happiness as possible. I know. One, so, one way or another. So let's just so be true. okay with that. I right? know. Let's just be okay with that. Let's just own that, right? So it, when you ask me about practices, any practice that anyone does, well, I'll bring it back to the first person. Any practice that I do is in the hope that that practice will help me experience more happiness. Yeah. So what are the practices that I do? I meditate. Um, I try and do as much Pilates as possible, um, try and move my body. Uh, I surf, not very well, but I love it. I surf, I surf a lot. I can surf enough to get onto a wave and have that woohoo feeling. Um, I practice, I put a lot of energy into my relationships. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a conscious practice. We've done some pretty good research on, on humans um, and all of the research shows the same thing is that the quality of your life is a direct correlation to the quality of your relationships. Mm. Uh, so it's a really good practice to invest time and energy into your relationships. And what's um, um, quality for you in that if it's, you know, something that you try to spend time with and nurture, what is it? Cause you can be with someone, but not be there too. Yeah, absolutely. Being, being really present with the people that you're with, you know, if I'm going to sit down and play a game of cards or something with one of my kids, then, you know, switch the device off and be there with your kid and play the game of cards with your kid. Um, if I'm listening to someone, I'm doing everything I can to, to be giving them all of my focus and all of my attention. But also, look, you know, relationships, we could talk for hours about relationships, the, even just the love languages and understanding what is your, the person that you're relating with, what's their love language, and speaking to them in their love language. You know, like what are, my, what's your love language and your partner? My, my top two um, love languages are physical contact, um, and by the way, just to clarify, that doesn't mean sex. That means holding hands, snuggling on the couch, touch, right? Um, which is interesting in these times of COVID. I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my family, my family are getting lots of cuddles. Um, so physical contact and words of affirmation, right? They're my top two. 
Um, my partner, luckily enough, one of her top two is also physical contact. That works well. We like holding hands. Um, but her top love language is acts of service. Now, because I know that, when I want her to feel loved, I'll do something for her. I'll speak it in her love language. I'll do an act of service. I'll um, make her something or, or vacuum the floors or chop the wood or I'll do something for her. But it's me saying I love you. And it lands for her. She feels loved and vice versa. So she knows that words of affirmation is a love language of mine. Now, to her, words are like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, just, just because you say it doesn't show me, show me that you mean it, she might say. Words are cheap, she might say. But when she wants me to feel loved, she'll, she'll speak in my love language. So she'll come to me and stand in front of me and say, you know, baby, you're amazing and thank you so much and the way you bother. She'll put it into words. Oh, wow, that's great. So when you, know, when you know the person's love language, you can speak in their language and they feel loved. I wish I had known this years ago. I know, yeah. <laughs> kids a, kids know this today. They, I just think they're so yeah. advanced. To it. I only worked out love languages five years ago, but it makes complete sense. Yeah, it's really, really helpful. So that's, that's a part, that's another practice, is, is practicing um, being good at, at relationships. Another practice, and, um, and I just heard this on a podcast the other day, um, The Science of Happiness, and this is really counterintuitive for introverts and even for some extroverts, it's counterintuitive. But being friendly to strangers, actually, it's, but this is not just someone making this up. They've measured this and done research on it. Being friendly to strangers and acts of kindness to strangers increases our levels of happiness. I can't wait to so, tell my partner that because he thinks I talk to too many people. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, there's a reason why you do Well, the reason you do it is because you're an extrovert, but also it makes you feel better, right? It makes you feel Yeah, happy. I like the idea of connecting. It's nice. It is connection, right? And so for an introvert, the idea of talking to a stranger is like no way the 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 trade-off initially is it's just so uncomfortable. I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. But even when introverts um, have some connection with a stranger, it doesn't, obviously it can be 1.5 metres apart now, you know, you don't have to touch them. Um, even when introverts have connection with a stranger, their levels of happiness go up. So for example, when I'm um, going for a run along the track here um, by the beach, when I'm running, and, and coincidentally, my partner's the same, every time someone passes the other way, we smile and wave. It's just a part of the way we do things. But it makes you feel good. Mm. It makes you feel good. I was chatting with a client the other day, and he was saying how sometimes he gets into a funk and um, something will happen at the start of the day and set him off on this downward spiral of feeling negative and shitty and you know down. And, and I was saying to him, well, if that's where you want to be, that's fine. He goes, no, I don't want to be there because my family are getting the negative effects from it. My employees are getting the negative effects of me being in this, this space. And he said, what are some things I can do to get myself out of this space? I said, go for a walk. And when you're walking along the track, smile and wave at everybody that walks past you and see what happens to your frame of mind. Mm. And he did it. And he came back and he called me the next day and he said, I went for a one hour walk and I smiled and waved at all the strangers and all of a sudden I was out of my funk and I felt better. Oh, that's great. Right. Do you think so it's because it is makes it, us conscious? It brings us into the moment well, just, and then... It just makes it not about you, you know? Yeah. Whenever, whenever we're feeling shitty, oh, it's because you're making it all about yourself. Yeah. Oh, woe is me. In my life, this is bad, that's bad. Da, da, da. Usually when we're feeling you know, down, it's because we're, we're taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah, I love that. We so do, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, what do you, how do you think, and look, go hard if you want, go wide. How do you think the world is going to change after this pandemic? Okay, here we go. I was having this conversation with a client again this morning as well. Now, I'm going to consciously choose to say the things that I'm about to say. I might be wrong, right? But how do I choose to answer that question right now? 
I choose to believe that we're going to be more grateful for the simple things. I choose to believe that when we can have friends over for dinner again, that that will be a beautiful experience that's more enriched than it was before. I choose to believe that groups of people and even countries are going to realize that they need each other. Like America is now realizing, holy shit, China makes most of our life-saving medicine. China made all the ventilators before, before now we're scrambling to do it. We can't just go to war and blow them up. We need each other. That's on a macro level. Mm -hmm. I'm choosing to believe that people on a micro level in the little micro social communities now are looking at each other with a connection that wasn't there before, that there is a global community now that humans are going, holy shit, we're actually part of the same species. Right? Now, yes, I know there'll be, you know, people that prove me wrong and, and go to fear and, and become all blah, 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 blah. But I choose to answer the question in that way because it affects my state of being here today right now. Yeah. And I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. Well, probably not likely because I'm not out in the big wide world very much. But my point is that we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know. But we do, I do know some things that will help make my life more beautiful and more enjoyable and more enhanced today. And that's by choosing to look at this opportunity of COVID as hopefully a springboard into us becoming more aware and more connected and, um, and a better version of ourselves than we were before. Mm. That's great. I got goosebumps as you were talking. Hmm. Do you think about, I haven't asked anyone this on a podcast, but do you think about dying and death? Yeah. I mean, not, I don't, I don't sit and ruminate over it. Um, okay. So do I think about it? I have thought about it. Um, I don't spend much time thinking about it now, but I do. Um, I have completely embraced that it's one of the few things in life that's a hundred percent given, right? And I don't have a fear of death. Um, I, my heart goes out to my loved ones that will be left behind after I'm gone because I know what that grief is like. I've lost my best friend. I've lost my brother. I've lost my dad. I've lost, you know, other people in my life. So I understand grief when, when a loved one dies and it hurts. There's no way around that. It sucks. Um, but embracing death is, an, is another practice that helps me live life 100%ly now. Yeah, because we, like I, like I just said, we don't know when we're going to die. None of us know. Um, and so, yeah, it's, look, it's, it's an old philosophy. It's certainly not a new idea. Um, but knowing that I'm going to die means that I'm going to live my life to the fullest right now, mm. you know, and, and give all of myself to life with a kind of abandon of, um, you know, what will be will be, but I'm, I'm going to give a hundred percent of myself to, to whatever it is that I'm doing in that moment. Mm. That's good. It's, um, it's, I think it's something that we don't even talk enough about. I completely agree with you. You know, I, I did a little um, video blog uh, a while ago just on this question and about death and, um, and I, and I shared it and I don't know, I, I never get really that many hits on, on stuff that I share, but it, if, if it helps one person, I'm, I'm stoked. Um, and I don't know, a few hundred people watched this. And then a friend of my mum's rang me up a few days later or a week later. And she said, Jem, I have got to thank you for that little Facebook video blog that you did about death and how it can help us live life to the fullest. Now she said, we've got a friend whose wife died five years ago. And he went into complete lockdown. We haven't, he won't, he won't answer our phone calls. He won't come out. He won't see us. He just went into full isolation depression. And she said, he watched your video blog and he started ringing us. He started calling his friends and reaching out, you know? So, so if it can just help one person, um, you know, and it's crazy that we don't talk about death. Oh, shouldn't talk about that. That's morbid. It's like, Oh my God, that's like not talking about life. You don't get birth without death. You don't get one without the other. So yeah. death can be, you know, look, I, I think death's amazing. I've been, in the, I've been in the room when, you know, a couple of people have, have passed um, and it's quite a um, miraculous, incredible 
experience. It's really quite beautiful in some sort of way. So can you feel the, the spirit leaving the body? Yeah, do you know when my dad died? Yes, we all did. We all felt that. We felt something. So in terms of what's actually occurring in the, in the physical or metaphysical universe in that moment, I don't know. But, it, but we certainly all felt something, 100%. Oh, yeah. wow. You can feel the energy leave the body and, and become part of the everythingness. And was it a calming feeling you felt? Like, did you feel calmness or? Uh, um, no, calmness is not a word that would come to mind. We felt relief because my dad had a brain tumour and, you know, his last few weeks were not so nice. And um, there was a sense of relief. Um, and then very quickly, within minutes, followed by humour because I come from a very musical family and we were all in the last few days of him being unconscious, we were, one of us would be bedside and usually singing, right? We're just singing to him. That's just what we do, right? My family all sing. And we we were just singing songs to him to help soothe him through to the other side. Right? So he, after he passed, um, and by the way, he'd had his eyes closed for um, about three days. He'd had his eyes closed, um, was kind of unconscious. And then just as he drew his last breath, he opened his eyes and looked directly at my mum and they made eye contact. And then he took his last breath and he exited. Um, And there was just this massive rush through the room. And then within two minutes, my, my younger boy, and I think at the time he was about three. Yeah. He was three years old and he was sitting on the bed next to my dad's, head and shoulder he was sitting there little three-year-old and completely unprompted because we'd all been singing to my dad two minutes after he died the three-year-old billy jeans not my love (laughs) (laughs) just a girl who claims that i'm (laughs) and the whole room my mum was there my brothers my sister our partners our kids and we all dropped to the floor in laughter Right, this beautiful child humour just came in and freed the boom. You know, it was hysterical. Oh, that's good. Hey, isn't that good about kids when they're around? That they don't. Yeah. It's so natural. Whatever, yeah. whatever they deliver. What do you yeah, think? I, no, there you go. Go. I was just going to say. Look, back on the thing about death. You know, I've I've always um, allowed my kids to be able to be present in in the death that's occurred around them. You know, when my dad died, they were right there, you know, and when my little brother died on his motorbike, my kids could um, see him, see the body, touch him. They were at the cremation. They got to push the the coffin into the furnace to be a part of that process, you know, because hiding them from it creates this thing that it's a bad thing. You know, I think that it's a part of life and death is a part of life. And so, I certainly haven't done, I certainly haven't hidden my kids from it. You know? Did you always think that way or is that just something that's come about through, you know, the last 10 years of human behaviour and your, you know, exploration no, through that? I'd have, to, I'd have to give mum and dad credit for that, I reckon. Yeah. In fact, I have to give them credit for a lot of, a lot of who I am today. We're, we're, you know, we are a lot to do with being products of our environment. Mm, so, um, so yeah, we've just always had an open door policy. When a family member has died, we open the doors and community comes in. You know, like when when my brother died, uh, the doors to our ho- to our house were open, and for weeks we just had a stream of loved ones coming and cooking for us and cleaning us and holding us while we wept, and um, it was community. Mm, that's yeah. lovely, it, and it sounds like it was. Like being so young and in such an open environment, then nothing's off the table as far as conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think? This is about coaching, the world of coaching. Why do you think there's it doesn't from where I just sit and, and my involvement with coaches, there's not that many male coaches, unless I haven't tapped into them, but where are all the male coaches, do you think? There's so many fem- female coaches out there. Do you have that experience yourself, like from what, how you see the industry? 
Yeah, now that you mention it, I think there's probably probably more female coaches and I hadn't thought about this until this moment, but um, coaching is a very human-centric, well, the type of coaching that, that I do, personal coaching, is very human-centric. It's, um, it's a lot about emotional intelligence. It's a lot about, um, it's a lot about the feminine and masculine, but it's, but it's a lot about softening and expanding. Um, whereas masculine quite often is about hardening and, and focusing on one thing. Um, and culturally, you know, there's, there's just, it just, we haven't produced males in our Australian culture. We haven't produced males that feel safe enough to be vulnerable and to be open to self-development and to be, um, you know, to, to soften. And that's just a product of our environment. Um, but look, you know, I, I look in it and we're also a bit behind the eight ball in terms of coaching as a thing in America, coach, everyone's got a coach, you know, or, and it, or at least every organization has a coach or, or some people have got three um, so coaches. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, you know, we're, we're getting there. Um, but yeah, I hadn't really thought about the male female ratio of coaches. Uh, what impact can a coach have in someone's life? Oh, if it's the right coach um, with the right person at the right time, it can, it can be life-changing completely. Um, if, it's, you know, if, it's not, if it's not a life-changing experience, it can certainly be life-enhancing or life-shapening mm. for sure. Yeah, and at the very least having someone to hold you accountable. A big part of what I do is not just having the transformational sit down session with someone. It's the accountability that um, they give me permission to, to hold them to and the regular contacts. And most of my clients um, are getting accountability from me on a weekly basis where I reach out to them and make sure that they've taken the actions that they agreed to take. Mm -hmm. So a co the coach coaching is a, you know, there's a big part of it is the accountability and the support. Um, how do you work with your clients? Like, is it a weekly basis? Like, or... Yeah, that depends. Okay. That, that depends on who the client is. So with organisations, um, I'm usually working with um, the CEO and the senior leadership team and the level of engagement depends on them, their needs, their budget, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then when I'm working one-to-one, -one, I usually work with business owners and more, more often than not, we have one coaching session a month, but then we have that weekly accountability and I'm on tap for them. My clients can call me or email me whenever. Um, yeah, that's generally how that looks for, for my clients. And then there's the overseas retreats when, when we're traveling. So up until COVID, um, we run a, a a leadership, a conscious leadership program in the Himalaya in North India each year, my partner and I. Um, we run one that was in Bali called the Conscious Woman each year and we, we were moving that to Costa Rica. We were supposed to be in Costa Rica as we speak, actually. Um, and then we've turned the Bali one into the Conscious Human. So that's for men and women now. Um, so there's those overseas retreats. Plus we run a, a relationships retreat here um, down the Great Ocean Road in Bells Beach in Victoria, where we live. And that's, um, that's a, a two-day weekend retreat for couples. So they come for two days and their relationships, they come out and they've got the best relationship? Yeah, well, they've, they've certainly got, um, they've, they've certainly, yeah, look, it's funny. A couple of different experiences come to mind. One, um, there's a couple who came and they weren't sure they loved each other, but they just couldn't communicate properly and they were driving each other nuts and they've just had their first baby. They're married. They've had their first baby and they're in absolute heaven. They're in this beautiful bubble. And I just, um, from a distance bumped into, um, one of them the other day and was asking how they are. And she said, it's just ridiculously amazing. And thank you so much. So there's that. Um, we've had other couples. What did, sorry, back to their, their, um, that couple is an example. What, what's a couple of the things that they learn at that retreat that made them communicate or see things differently? 
they learn a couple of the key things that they learn. They learn each other's behavioral style. Yeah. So there's four behavioral styles. We all have a blend of them, but we have a lead style. And if you don't know that, then the person's alien to you. You go, why, why do you think like that? Why do you act like that? Why do you behave like that? And because you don't get it, you find it annoying. You're like, my God, can we just get in the car and go to the beach? And the other person's taking an hour to pack every last little piece of detail. And you don't get that because you don't understand their behavioral style. So behavioral styles is a big thing. Masculine feminine is massive. So masculine feminine is not man, woman. Every woman has access to masculine and every man has access to feminine. And in some relationships, it may be, um, it may be natural for them that the female in the relationship is more in her masculine and the male's more in, in his feminine. So it doesn't matter. But understanding these different energy styles of masculine and feminine is massive in relationship because that's where the polarity comes. That's where the, the sexual charge, the attraction comes. And if that isn't working, you lose the sexual charge. Or if it's working too much and there's no common ground in the middle, then the sex is great, but you fight a lot. Mm. Yep. So it's understanding this thing. Always having balance. Having balance. Ego, understanding your ego, communication, love languages. These are all the things that we teach. Um, and understanding all of this stuff and practicing it in relationship allows you to have a conscious relationship, which is where you're aware. Right? You're aware of your own behavior. You're more aware of your partner. You know when it's your ego jumping in. I mean, our egos are so defensive and we fight over the most ridiculous stuff if you're not aware. But when Mm -hmm. you become aware, you can go, oh, hey, I don't need to fight over that. I don't need to prove you wrong in this moment. I can just soften and let it be. Mm -hmm. So that sort of stuff. So there's stories like that. Then then there's another couple that we had that have been married for 20 years or something and four kids and they had decided to divorce they decided that they wanted to separate and they came and did our retreat so that they could find more harmonious ways to communicate and separate more consciously. Wow. Right. And, so, then, oh, then, and then, yeah, then they separated. Yeah. And they separated more consciously and, How and respectfully. Yeah, I know. Right. They oh. blew everyone away at the start of the retreat when everyone was telling their stories at the start of the retreat. And they said that, you know, um, and so, yeah, and we've had everything in between. We've had some couples come who it's just been absolutely amazing for them. We've had some couples come who have realised, do you know what? I love you, but I don't think we should be together. Yeah, right. And they're happier now, but they didn't have the courage to, to go there before. So we're certainly not advocates that, you know, that it's until death do you part. My partner and I have both come from marriages that ended. We've, and we've brought our kids and we're now a blended family. And, um, you know, we're certainly not um, out there saying that um, every person, every two people should stay together forever. If you're being, if it's toxic and not working and you're not good for each other and you're not helping each other be the best versions of yourselves you can be, um, then maybe it's not meant to be forever. Mm. Yeah. Was it a difficult decision for you to, End your first marriage? Oh, yeah. Over years and years and years and years years of trying to keep it together and trying to work it out and and, and not wanting that white picket fence two-kid dream to come shattering to the ground. And, you know, know, no one Mm. falls in love and gets married thinking that you're going to break up. You think that it's your soulmate forever, right? So it's it's shattering to have that dream broken. Um, once a coach told me, we're just really, as humans, we're terrible at endings. We don't know how to end things really lovely, but your example with that couple going to the retreat and they're looking for a great way to end their marriage. It's just quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. Look, I I think that me and um, my boy's mum, I think we did it pretty well. I mean, there was always ups and downs, but you know, where we do week on week off now, we communicate fine. The boys are happy. They've adjusted. Um, you know, there was no lawyers. There was no um, fighting over possessions. There was none of that. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think, and it's not really an ending, is it? It's a transition. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's yeah, not an end. Good. It's a transition. So, yeah. 
And how are you, you know, what's gem like version to marriage, you know? Oh, yeah, so much better. Okay, great. Oh, so much better. Look, I, I don't want to go on too much about it because um, I don't want to make your listeners <laughs> start sticking their fingers No, but it's, it's something that but we it's, can it's, learn from. It's beautiful. It's, it's a conscious relationship. Um, it's so easy. You know, it's, it's so loving. And when people, when friends ask, oh, how are you guys going? I, I feel like I'm going to bore them by saying, yeah, amazing. Like all the time, you know, amazing. And, you know, if we ever have moments, which is so few and far between, but if we ever have moments of it being a little glitchy or your ego jumps in or you get a bit defensive, we're resolved within minutes. Not, mm. not sleeping on it overnight or into the next day. It's like pretty quickly um, let go and resolved and in harmony again. So I, I, we pinch ourselves. We're very, very lucky. That's good. And is it, is it cause it's easy and, or is it you keep working at it or both? Yeah, both. It's easy. It's easy because we work, we work at this. When I say work at this stuff, it doesn't feel like yeah. work. we're both into the same stuff. We do the same workshops. We read the same books. We read books to each other. We go on retreats together. We're both into the same stuff in terms of personal development and relationship. Um, so when I say the work in inverted commas, the work that we do, cause it doesn't feel like work. Um, yes, it's to do with that. And it's easy because of that, but also we do the work because it's easy. Like it's all yeah, you know, part of the same. That's thing. a perfect answer. Okay, this is my last question. What yeah. advice would you give to someone who is contemplating, you know, starting a personal development journey? Uh-huh. Do it. Um, I think it's in terms of um, return on investment, right, to, to coin a corporate phrase, Return on investment for self. So what is it that you want in life? Well, like we said before, most people want to be as happy as much of the time as possible, right? And if you go seeking that through buying things, purchasing things, doesn't work. If you go seeking that through um, just through experience, like I did when I was younger, that doesn't create a long-lasting equilibrium of happiness either. It's very short-lived. Um, it, that's the, the craving part of us, right? We crave something. And then as soon as we've had that thing, we're kind of craving the next thing. So that doesn't bring it either. In terms of return on investment of your time, energy, money, if you spend it on good quality personal development, I just think you get the most dividends. I just think you, you, you can figure out how to be generally a pretty happy person. Um, and then you can stop making it about you and go and serve. Mm. Yeah. Um, but if you're driven to serve and contribute to the lives of others, if you're not doing the work on yourself first, you're really capping the amount that you're able to, to go and contribute. So you can be doing the, the two concurrently. You don't have to wait until you're all sorted before you help other people. You can be doing them both at the same time, but you, I completely believe you should be investing in um, your ability to improve your relationship with self. Yeah. And you know what? You can feel it. I can feel when someone has invested or spent time or knows themselves, maybe they, they got lucky and, you know, they didn't have to do much work, but you, you really can feel it mm. when you're around someone like that, you yeah. know, and it feels great to be around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's contagious, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much. You're um, welcome. It was really good. Great talking to you as always. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have a good, good afternoon. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that was just the most enjoyable. I don't know how long we've been chatting for just over an hour, but that was really a really lovely way to spend the afternoon. So thank you for inviting me on. Thanks, Jim.